You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles with you, let's join him now. If you have your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to look at the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 this morning, verses 13 through 18. Let's read our text and then we'll, uh, we'll come back and, and talk about it. It says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Thessalonica after having spent just a very short amount of time with them. And he got report back that they were experiencing an incredible amount of trial and difficulty. In fact, people were being slain, people were being murdered for their belief in Jesus. And Paul understood what it was to be persecuted. And we've read and studied about the persecutions that Paul endured. And so he wrote to them to encourage them because their friends were, were being persecuted. That their, their families and their loved ones were, were being murdered right in front of them for their faith in Jesus. And Paul wanted to bring hope to them. And that's really what the entire book is about is hope. And in the times in which we live, where we are facing enormous difficulties, death is a certainty. Financially, our, our country is in a, a crisis that we may have never experienced historically. There are all kinds of, of things going on in this world and in our lives in which we need hope. And as believers, we have hope. And we need to be able to give that hope to others. And that's the hope that Paul wants to bring to these believers and that he wants to bring to us. Because death is a certainty. We may not die for our faith. We may not you know, have our, our head removed with a guillotine. We, we may not be tortured as some are experiencing around the world, even presently. We may die just of natural causes. But death is a certainty. Many of you know that, that my dad passed away this summer. That one day he was fairly healthy. The next day he couldn't brush his teeth. He couldn't hold up his arm. He went to the doctor. He found out he had a very malignant brain tumor, very aggressive brain tumor, and it took him in four months. It, it just blows my mind when I think about it that just a year ago we were hanging out up in Leavenworth over the holidays and riding snowmobiles. Won't do that again. And who, who knows who you might lose this year. And I don't say that to be morbid, but I say that as a reality. It might be you. We're not promised tomorrow. It, it might be a close loved one. Some of you have experienced death. 
of a loved one. Some of you haven't. But all of us will. Because death is a certainty. And if we don't have hope, if we don't have hope beyond this life, we've got nothing. In fact, Paul said we are to be pitied more than any people. If as Christians, all that we're doing is serving God so that we can live a moral life and be good people. If that's all that there is, we are to be pitied above all men. We have a hope beyond this life. We have a hope that we can give to people. We have a hope in Jesus. And hope has been the major theme of 1 Thessalonians. And Paul does not want them, he does not want us, God does not want us to be ignorant about those believers who have, as Paul says, fallen asleep or died in Jesus. He says there in verse 13, I do not want you to be ignorant. And it's interesting that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant because he says this four times in the New Testament about different things. I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. And each of the things that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about, are things that are just surrounded by ignorance. In Romans eleven twenty five, Paul says, Don't be ignorant about God's plan for Israel. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul says, Don't be ignorant about spiritual gifts. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8, he says, Do not be ignorant about suffering and trials in the Christian life. And then here, do not be ignorant about death and about the second coming of Christ. So funny that these are the things that we are so ignorant about and that there is so much division in the church about. Death at this time that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians was something that was looked upon very pessimistically. Here here are a few quotations of philosophers and writers during this time. Of a man once dead, there is no resurrection. Hope is for the living. The dead are without hope. Suns may set and rise again, but we, when once our brief light goes down, must sleep an endless night. And you know, it wasn't just ancient writers, it's today too. People are hanging on to this life with all that they have, trying to perpetuate this life, trying to find the fountain of youth, some way to keep it going, because we're so afraid of death. And even in the church... Isn't it funny that we all want to go to heaven, but none of us want to die? It's like we talk about heaven, and we sing about heaven, and we can't wait to get there, but, oh man, I don't want to die, and I'm going to do everything I can to hang on to this life. And I think it's built within us to survive, but at some point we have to say, you know what? When it's God's time, it's God's time. And it was funny, this weekend, we uh, went with Andrea's family, all four families, and we went to cut a Christmas tree, which I've never cut a Christmas tree in November in my life. Let alone, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. But here we are, we're out there, and we all go traipsing into the woods out past sisters. And, and you know, it, it was kind of ridiculous at first. It was like 20 of us, and we're just traipsing through the woods. And, and then we kind of split up, and then Andrea's dad, who's got tons of back problems. He's like, I can't do this because the manzanita was so thick, you could hardly walk. So he and Andrea's mom went, went back and it, pretty soon it just, it, we were left with just Andrea, Carson, and myself and our dog because Caitlin went with uh, Andrea's older brother and his, his family. And 
her younger brother and his wife, they, they cut down a tree. They were heading back. And so we were kind of left alone. And I knew in my mind, we're only like 100 yards off the road. But it had taken us like an hour to get there because the manzanita was so thick. And, and Andrea, who's not, you know, she doesn't spend a lot of time in the woods at all. She's totally turned around. And I told her, I said, "Hun, the mountains were to our right when we came in. They'll be to our left when we go out. We're just fine. We're lost, you know, and she starts panicking. And she's, you know, screaming, help, you know. And, and, and I'm like, look, the road is right there. You're embarrassing me, right? I know where we're at. Please don't do this. And so she's like up on top of stumps, you know, screaming help. You know, she's wanting to call the search and rescue. She, she's saying we're going to die. You know, it's getting cold. What are we going to do? Carson's going to die, you know. And I told her, I said, look, we've got the dog. I got a saw. We'll just kill the dog. We'll eat the dog. It's not a problem. But the whole time I knew where we were at. And, but it was, it was super hard to get back because, again, we're through all the manzanita and just branches and slapping you in the face and we're falling down. So finally we pop out and, you know, there's her dad and he's cutting down a tree and right by the road. And, you know, we're just, I mean, we were literally like maybe 100 yards into the woods. And I, and I told her, I said, look, you should have believed me. I said, if I'm scared, then you get scared. But until then, we're fine. And you know what? I think... It's sort of a picture of how many of us look at death. We're just so afraid. And yet Jesus is right there. And he says, look, I'm not afraid. You don't need to be afraid. I'm here with you. I'm going to take you through this. And, and I want to look at four truths that bring us comfort regarding death. Four things that should bring hope to us this morning. Because as Paul says in verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul wants us to be comforted. And there's four things in our text that bring us comfort regarding something that brings a lot of fear. Death. Probably man's greatest fear. Maybe public speaking. Ask Julie. But beyond that, death is man's greatest fear. And there's four things that Paul says should bring us comfort. The first is the reality of death. In verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Paul simply calls death sleep. It's the emphasis upon rest. When your child takes a nap or when they go to sleep for the evening, you don't panic. When your spouse falls asleep, you don't go into a, a period of grieving because you know that they're going to wake up and you're going to see them again. And that's the picture that, that Paul is wanting us to, to have of, of death. It, it's sleep. Early Christians began to call burial places cemeteries for this reason because the word cemetery means sleeping place. And that's all that death is for the Christian. Now, the Bible never calls death for the unbeliever sleep. Because death for the unbeliever is not restful. It's, it's passing from this life into a period of judgment and facing the wrath of God. But for the believer, for those of us who have put our trust and our hope in Jesus, those that have said, 
I've blown it, like Dave said this morning. I need Jesus. My life is screwed up. I need him to forgive me. I need to wear forgiveness like a crown. For those of us that have confessed that, death is just taking your last breath here and your first breath in heaven. It's just sleep. It isn't something to fear. It isn't something to dread. But Paul says, I don't want you to grieve lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And so sorrowing and grieving is normal. But we shouldn't do it as those who have no hope because of the reality of death that it's just sleep. It's like when a loved one goes away on a trip and you watch them board a plane or get on a train or drive away in a car. You know that you'll see them again. And and so that's what death is for the believer. It's just saying goodbye for for a time. Not forever. And grieving is normal. My mom is, is still grieving, of course. And she misses my dad. And I miss my dad. But I know that I'm going to see him again. And so I don't sorrow as those that have no hope. And so the reality of death is that it's just sleep. It's, it's just passing from this life into the next. And for this time, we won't see that person anymore. But, but soon, we will. And so there's hope in that. The reality of death, that it's just sleep. A second truth that should bring us comfort is the resurrection from the dead in verse 14. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Now I want you to notice that Paul describes Jesus as dying. He doesn't say sleep in regard to Jesus' death. And the reason for that is because he doesn't want to candy coat the death of Jesus. Because it was brutal. It was violent. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He took the judgment for your sin and my sin. He cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Paul doesn't want to sugarcoat that. And so he calls it death. He says, Jesus died. But look, Jesus rose again. This is the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's sad because so much of Christianity has become something other than the gospel. So much of Christianity has become just really Dr. Phil and Oprah inside a church building. It's just self-help. It's nothing that anybody would really be offended at. But here, right here, Jesus died and rose again. That, you guys, is the crux It's what we should be focused upon. It's the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus. It's what our lives should be rooted in. And the resurrection from the dead, the hope that we have that we will be resurrected, is absolutely hinged upon the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus describes himself as the head of the church. And because he rose from the dead, we too will rise from the dead. We have that hope. We're given hope beyond this life. And that's why Jesus made his resurrection so clear. It's why Paul says he appeared to over 500 people because he wants you to know that there's hope beyond this life. And it's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. And there is this move within Christianity and and certainly in this time where where everything is up for grabs. To say that the resurrection isn't that important. 
to say that, that we don't have to believe in that. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a fairy tale. I mean, who's really going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And the fact is, is that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. And if there's no resurrection, we're wasting our time. Like Paul said, we're to be pitied above all men. If there's no resurrection, if there's no hope beyond this life, then go do what you want to do. As the Bible says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, if this is the case. Let's go party it up, but we have hope beyond this life. And that's what we need to be focused on. Too much of our lives are focused on this earth. That's why Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on things below. Because when you get your mind so focused on this life and on this world, you lose sight of eternity and it brings hopelessness. But because Jesus died, he died in your place. He took your place and he rose from the dead. You have assurance that you have abundant life, eternal life, and that you will rise from the dead as well. As Paul says, even so, because of the truth, of the gospel that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or those who have died in Jesus. One of the questions and one of the misconceptions that these believers in Thessalonica had was that if somebody died before the second coming of Christ, that they were pretty much hopeless that you needed to hang on until Jesus came back. And that was a misconception they had. It was a reason that Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Apparently, Paul had taught them some things about the end times while he was there, but they got it confused. And they started thinking, well, man, if, if we're not here when Jesus comes back, we're host. And Paul wants them to know, no. If you die, you go into the presence of Jesus. As he said in 2 Corinthians, To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And in Philippians, Paul talking about his own death said, I would rather die so that I might be in the presence of the Lord. But for your sake, I want to stay so that I can minister to you. And Paul understood that when he died, he was going to go into the presence of the Lord. And he wants them to understand that. And he wants you to understand that this morning. A third truth that should bring us comfort, you guys, is, is the... Truth of the return of Christ. In verses 15 to 17, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And it's unclear whether Paul received this as direct revelation or whether this is something that Jesus said that's unrecorded or whether Paul is talking about some of the teachings that Jesus gave regarding the end times. But whatever the case, this is a word from Jesus himself. We say this by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died in Jesus. And so those who are alive and remain at Jesus' coming, we're not going to precede or take advantage of the resurrection and those that are dead won't. He's clarifying this again. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so now he begins to talk about the return of Christ. And this should not bring fear. Have you seen that bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming back and boy is he mad? The return of Christ should not bring fear to the believer. 
Jesus is not mad at us. Yes, he's going to come and judge the world. Revelation talks about that. He's going to judge those who are apart from him, those who have rejected his offer of love and grace. But he's not mad at us. And that's why we have to be careful as Christians, and I have to be careful as a pastor, to not give you the idea that God's mad at you, because he isn't. And it's easy for us to get frustrated with people and then to blame that on God. And God's not mad. God's mad at sin, but he poured out his wrath, his anger, his righteous anger upon Jesus. And therefore, sin is no longer the issue. The issue is rebellion against him. It's a rejection of his son. It's turning your back on his offer of grace. And if you do that, then you're subject to his wrath. Because you're saying to God, I don't need your love. I don't need your grace. But Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he will descend from heaven with a shout. Apparently an audible shout that the whole world will hear. With the voice of an archangel. And so we're not really sure if, if this is describing Jesus' voice. That it will be like a powerful angelic voice. Or if it's saying that... Michael, the archangel, the only angel that is described as an archangel in the Bible, that Michael will be shouting as well. Whatever the case, we're going to hear it. And there's going to be a trumpet. A trumpet calling forth the believers. Trumpets in the Bible were used to gather people together. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those that have died before his coming will receive their resurrected bodies. Now, this doesn't mean that they're floating out there somewhere in what some would call soul sleep, because the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible says that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. We're not floating out there somewhere. But exactly how this works, I don't know. But what we find is that at the coming of Christ, the the dead in Christ will receive their resurrected bodies. Now you have to understand something and and this is something that the Thessalonians apparently didn't understand. And that's the difference between time and eternity. See, we are bound by our concept of time. We think in terms of the past, the present, and the future. But eternity doesn't know that. Eternity is all things present. Everything is now. There's no past. There's no future. Everything's happening now. And so when you think about eternity and you think, man, that's going to be a long time. Just sitting there on a cloud playing a harp. I mean, my gosh, what are we going to do? This is going to be ridiculous. This is going to be like a a nightmare. This is going to be like a never-ending doctor's appointment, you know, sitting out in the lobby. What in the world? We're not going to think in terms like that. It it isn't going to be... Past. We're not going to be thinking about what happened yesterday. There is no yesterday. We're not going to be thinking about what's going on tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. It's all present. It's a period of ever present. And so when you think about the fact that at the coming of Christ, these dead in Christ, those believers who have died before his coming will receive their resurrected bodies, well, to them, it'll just be like that because there is no future. And, and you could trip out on that for a while. Just think about eternity for a little bit. And he goes on in verse 17 to talk about his return and, and what is called the rapture. 
He says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And so he begins to talk about what in English we call the rapture. And it's the words here, caught up. In the Greek language, harpazo. In the Latin from which we get the word rapture, it's raptus. And many say, well, the the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, either is the word trinity, but we still believe in it because the doctrine is there. The, The concept is there of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three being one. We call it the trinity. Call it what you want. And call this doctrine what you want, the rapture. Call it the catching away if you don't like rapture. But it's, it's here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And it's a violent catching away from the earth. Now, this doctrine is probably the single most divisive doctrine in all of the church. People have been arguing about this for thousands of years. When is Jesus coming back? And it's interesting to me that in Jesus' earthly ministry, he said, I don't even know. When Jesus ascended and the disciples were standing there wondering when he was coming back, the angel told him, it's not for you to know. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. But isn't it interesting that even though we're constantly told we don't need to know the time, that we want to know the time, and we spend so much time, so many books have been written. I mean, one guy back in the late 80s got so carried away that he actually wrote three books about the time that Jesus was going to come back, 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Well, he didn't come back, and so it was 89 reasons why he's coming back in 1989. And then he didn't come back, and so it was 90 reasons why he's coming back in 1990, and then he gave up at that point. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how we get so caught up in the rapture, in when it's going to happen, and, and whole ministries are based upon the timing of the rapture. And churches seemingly are so infatuated with the end times and the rapture that that's all they talk about. Even some guys that I love and respect. I mean, I listen to them and it's like, bro, how in the world do you tie every verse in the Bible to the rapture? It isn't there. It's ridiculous. But there are Five main positions on the rapture that we'll just briefly cover, just for your information. Extra credit. Five, five main positions. There's what's called the pre-tribulation rapture position, which believes that those of us that know Jesus, believers, are caught up, are raptured before what the Bible describes as the great tribulation, the final seven-year period in Revelation 16 to 19, or Revelation 6 to 19. There's what's called the mid-tribulation rapture position. This position believes that believers are caught up in the midst of the final seven-year period. As God is pouring out His wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, in the midst of that, believers are caught away, this caught up together that Paul describes here. It's in the middle. Some believe it's before. Some believe it's in 
the middle, there's another position that believes that it's after. Post-tribulation rapture position. Which believes that believers are caught up at the end of the great tribulation. After it's over. That the believers are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And they go out to greet Jesus. And then they return with him to set up the kingdom upon the earth. Now lest we think that's ridiculous. This, this word, this, this idea does hold that in mind. That it's like a military summonings. That when a military general or a person of great position comes to a city, that people would go out to meet that dignitary and they would greet them. You remember Saul did that with Samuel in the book of 1 Samuel. Now I'm not saying I believe in post-tribulationism, but lest we think it's ridiculous that we would go up and then come back, there is some indication that that's the idea that Paul had in mind. That that's the, the phraseology, that that's what he was referring to when he uses this word caught up. There's another position called pre-wrath. The pre-wrath rapture position believes that believers are caught up at some time in the second half of the final seven-year period or the Great Tribulation. That we'll, we will be spared from the wrath of God, but we will endure many of the tribulations that are described there that aren't directly from God. Because the Bible says that we're not appointed to God's wrath. And so some believe that the beginning of the tribulation is not directly from God. That these are the results of wars and famines and that we will endure that, but then be raptured before God begins to pour out his wrath. And then there's a final position, the one that I think is borderline heresy. The other four I'm totally cool with, but this one I think is a problem. And it's called the partial rapture position. And it believes that only those believers that are truly following the Lord will be caught up. And so if you're in the midst of of a sin and Jesus comes back, then you're going to miss out on the rapture. If you're not living the way that you're supposed to, that you'll miss out on his return. And I think that is legalism. And, and I think it borders on heresy. And so these different rapture positions, I'm not here to convince you of any of them. Because I think that they're theories. And I think that the Bible leaves things ambiguous for a reason. If he wanted us to know exactly how it would all take place, he would have told us. But the Bible does declare that Jesus could come back at any time. That his return could happen at any time. And that we need to be waiting. That we need to be looking up because our redemption is drawing close. That we should never lose sight of eternity. Now, do I think we should get so focused on the rapture and, you know, just run around paranoid, looking for all kinds of conspiracy theories, thinking that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. Do, I mean, hey, we've all got those emails, right? It's crazy. It, it's ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous, the things that Christians will come up with. I, I'm embarrassed sometimes, to be honest with you. It's like... Who started this email brigade? I mean, are you kidding me? Do we honestly believe this? 
we've got we've to put a stop to this. This is insane. God has not called us to be paranoid. And I, and I really, it, it, it's, it's amazing to me how that we're supposed to be looking for the return of Christ. And yet we are, as Christians, wanting to put a stop to anything that might lead up to it. Do you notice that? It's like all these things that are happening right now in our world. Christians are just panicked and paranoid. If this is the ushering in of the end times, then praise God. We're not supposed to run from it. This is our hope. And so Paul gives them comfort in the return of Christ. And the fourth and final thing that I want us to to take note of is the reunion of believers in verse 17. He says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. Together. And we will always be with the Lord. And so those believers that have gone on before us, like my dad, one day we're going to be with them. One day there will be a reunion. And that should bring us comfort. Now notice that Paul says, comfort one another with these words. And you know what? There is no comfort for those that don't know Jesus. Paul is not trying to give people outside of Christ comfort. He doesn't say, hey, if, if your loved one died and they don't know the Lord, then take comfort in that. No, that is supposed to bring grief. He doesn't say, you know what? If you don't know Jesus, it's all good because God loves everybody and everybody's going to heaven and we're, it's, it's all going to just happen the way it, you know, it'll all pan out. Don't worry about it. He doesn't say that. Paul wants to leave you with a sense of hopelessness if you don't know Jesus. And this morning... If you don't know Jesus, can I encourage you to think about eternity? Can I encourage you to think about death? You might think, well, I'm going to live a long time and and I will figure it out when I get old. I'll figure out what I believe then. That's what everybody says, including those that die in their teenage years. Every year it seems like a group of teens dies in a car accident. They didn't expect to die. Every night on the, the news, we, we hear of people in their 20s and early 30s who are murdered or dry, die of drug overdoses. It has nothing to do with youth. You might live to be 80 or 90 years old, or you might die in your 20s. You just don't know. And may I encourage you to think about death for a second and to think, what's after this life? Do you have any hope? Jesus wants to give you hope this morning. He wants to give you comfort. And maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you're losing a loved one. Jesus wants to give you comfort this morning. That you don't need to sorrow as those that have no hope. And if you have a a family member that is getting up there or is dying, it's incumbent upon you to share the gospel with them. And yes, it might be awkward. It might be difficult. But you know what? There's no better time than when somebody's thinking about eternity. When I go into a hospital and there's someone on their deathbed and I've been asked to go and to speak with them, it's always a little awkward. But you know what I find? I don't need to say much about, hey, you know, the situation you're in. And the context has already been established, right? They've got tubes hooked up to them. They're, you know, just one bad heartbeat away from death. And they know that. And when I share with them, They're all ears. They may not be able to hear me that well, and I may have to get real close, but they're all ears. 
And you know what, you guys? There's people all around us in this community who are all ears. Look for those opportunities. Maybe you're one of those people this morning and you thought, you know what, I need Jesus. Then come and receive him today. Don't wait. And I love that Paul says, comfort one another. The idea is that we should be ministering to others. And by doing so, we will be comforted in our own difficulty and grief. He says, comfort one another. That's the call that we have, you guys. That's why we're here, is to minister to other people. And who has God placed in your life that you can bring comfort to as a believer this morning? Who can you come alongside and give them hope in Jesus? We're always focused upon ourselves, aren't we? It's all about me, and woe is me. And life has dealt me a bad hand, and, and I hate this life. And, and even as Christians, it's amazing to me how myopic and self-consumed we can become. And Paul says, comfort others. Think outside of your own life. Begin to give Jesus to other people. We're going to have people up here to pray with you. There are lots of things that I know that are going on in our lives that we need prayer for. Humble yourself. Come and, and ask to be prayed for, to be ministered to. Confess your sins one to another. Have somebody come alongside you and pray for your physical situation, your financial situation, a relational difficulty. That's what we're here for, to, to receive the hope that we have in Jesus. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. If you would like to write to us or contribute to this ministry, you may do so at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Or you may log on to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com. Thank you for listening, and God bless.